Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Head Network. I'm Nathan Abrams, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Andrew Hesketh about his book, Escape to Gurich Castle, A Jewish Refugee Story. Andrew was born and grew up in Derbyshire. Following his degree, Andrew trained to be a teacher and moved to work in North Wales in 1995. He's the assistant head teacher at, at Uskal Abakonwi and lives in Abagele. This is his first book. Andrew. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invite. Oh, it's great to have you here. Um, so I, I wonder if you could uh, begin the interview by telling us a bit more about yourself. Um, well, I, I, I'm a history teacher, um, so I've always had this desire to, you know, that, that thing that often crops up in conversation about teachers, that those who can do and those who can't teach, it's kind of always bugged me a little bit. So I've always been a sort of researcher, just First World War primarily. Um but some 10 years ago or so, I, I came across this potential story, began looking into it, and, and an obsession was born. Um, so, yeah, a genuine fascination with all aspects of history, particularly, I guess, local history. Yeah, history was my favourite subject at school, and that's what I I, I, I read modern history for my degree. Um, and interestingly, there's probably a similar journey to yourself, because um, when I moved to Scotland, that's what got me interested in local history. Um so how did you come to write Escape to Gurich Castle? It started um, locally that there is knowledge that Jewish refugees were at the castle in the Second World War, uh, and I picked up on that, that quite early upon my arrival. Um, but I discovered very early on that I couldn't really learn much beyond that. Most people knew that, but beyond that sentence, there was very little knowledge. And so... I used to go up there a lot with the kids when they were little, um, and I just thought, originally it was just a hobby, just an interest, try and find out a little bit more, just purely personally. Um, And it wasn't, you know, I didn't set out, for example, to write what I've ended up with. It started off just purely of personal interest. But at some point, two or three years into that, I began to realise that there there was really a large story here, one that I couldn't find any real reference to in anything. Um, other than a passing reference. Um, and so, yeah, so I just I developed the interest and, and um, away it went. Okay, so for the benefit of our listeners who might not be familiar with the book uh, and the story, which you've alluded to, do you want to give us um, a kind of introduction? Yeah, so Gary Castle, Abergelly, North Wales, um, in August 1939, um, was um, handed to Bachad um, as a training centre at Hachshara, um, and they developed it with 200 young people. It was the largest um, single training centre in Britain at that stage um, and the sort of flagship for the entire movement of around about 20 or so that existed around the United Kingdom. So the young people that came were, were the vast majority, virtually all of them um, had arrived on kinder transport. Um, and, you know, as many people will know, there's, there's plenty of research into the kinder transport and particularly those who went into foster care, but, but very little on the training centres. 
Um, as I mentioned, Career Castle was, was by far the largest of them. Okay, so you've mentioned various things there, um, which I think I'd like to ask you to explain. So firstly, it's Bachad, secondly, Hachshara, uh, thirdly, Gurekh Castle itself. I, I, I don't know if um, people beyond Abigail will be familiar with it. No, so, well, they might be familiar with it because it was the ho- it was the, the site of the I'm a Celebrity series um, during COVID. Um, when they stopped going to Australia, they, they looked for a location in Britain and, and Gurekh was, was where they ended up. So that, it sort of hit the national headlines at that point. Most people really, apart from those in the area, hadn't really heard much about it. Um, Bachad, one of several Zionist groups, um, so Youth Aliyah, Bachad in particular, were two of the groups that were, that were very keen on developing the Hakshara. So the Hakshara are these, these agricultural training centres um, designed to prepare um, young people for a potential future life in Palestine, um, of course, later Israel. Um, so the, the concept on these Hakshara was to, to become as self-sufficient as possible. Um, to find the young people work on local farms, to develop those agricultural skills, obviously develop the religious um, understanding and the sort of mentality required for, for a future life on a kibbutz. That was kind of the plan. Yeah, I always find it interesting that, um, you know, North Wales is the, or Wales is the site for preparing uh, young Jews for a life in Israel or Palestine. Yeah, it doesn't seem an obvious location. I mean, to be fair, um, the, the the person behind it primarily was a chap called Aria Handler. Um, and he had this idea that, that the Hakshara existed, that there were several of them, as I mentioned before. But um, as more and more young people on Kingdom Transport came in and were sort of backing up in reception centres, he, he wanted something larger, something that would take greater numbers, something that was act as a kind of a flagship um, for the entire movement. Um, he wasn't specifically looking for a location in North Wales. What he was looking for um, was a location that had to take one of several, bo- well, all of several boxes. Clearly, it had to be a large building, a, a place that was capable of accommodating not just 20, 30 or 40 or so young people, but 200 plus was, was the ideal. So looking for a large building was, was difficult because it would also need to be a large building that the owner didn't want. Um, or was willing to hand to Bachar either either free um, or, or, or very little rent. It would also have to be in an area that had a very strong local agrarian economy. That that was key. If you're going to get the young people onto the farms to work, there has to be plenty of farms in the area. And it would also have to be somewhere that um, would not be at all affected by any potential evacuation plans should the Second World War break out, which, of course, which we know it does. They didn't know at the time, but they'd already factored that thought process in. So looking for a location that, that ticked all those boxes was it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. Um, they became aware of Greek early August 1939. Um, Aria Handler and his, his brother Julius came to have a look at it. Um, they realised it wasn't perfect in so many ways. The building itself had been neglected for the best part of 15 years. That Nobody had lived in it. Lord Dundonald, who owned it, uh, was a Scottish lord, lived in Scotland. He'd inherited it uh, from his father, but he, he had no intention of living there. So he was actually in the process during the summer of 1939 of, of looking for alternative uses for it. And although the Act of Parliament for requisitioning property hadn't yet been passed, he was already in the process of discussing with the government, handing it to them, should they be able to find some kind of use for it, should war break out. Um, that requisitioning did go ahead, but in the meantime, um, Bachad and, and others sort of lobbied 
the government for, for allowing it to go to them. Lord Dundonald had no objection to it. Um, and so it was handed to them when they asked for it. So, as I said, they, they weren't looking specifically for Wales. They weren't looking specifically for North Wales. They were just looking for a building that, that satisfied those various uh, criteria. And, and Craig did that. So it was serendipitous or providential, depending on how you look at these things. Um, so just to put this in wider context, you mentioned the kinder transport. Um, would you like to say a little bit more about that and how this fits into in, in, into the kinder transport? Yeah, kinder transport. Um, following the events of Kristallnacht, there was there was great pressure um, on the British government. There was there was a, a British, well, an, an international reaction to the events of Kristallnacht, but in Britain. Um, a lot of different charities, a lot of different organisations began to lobby the government to do something to help. Um, the idea behind Kinder Transport was to offer a safe haven for young people up to the age of 18 within Britain. The principle behind it was, um, with the Nazis f- trying to force Jews out of Germany, um, it just wasn't as easy as it sounds to find an alternative place to go. The thought process was that if Britain could take the children then the adults who stay behind in Germany would find it easier um, to find somewhere to emigrate to, and then the children could move on again to relocate with them. So effectively, Britain was offering a a temporary safe haven um, until parents could find somewhere to go and the children could rejoin. Um, Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, Events um, overtook it. During 90... Well, between sort of the end of November 1938 and... The outbreak of war in September 1939, approximately 10,000 young people um, arrived in Britain. And as I mentioned before, the vast majority of them went into some form of foster care. Um, not quite sure of the exact numbers, but guesstimating around 90%, 92%. Um, but as I said, on the, on the side of that, there is this, this okay, admittedly a very small group, um, but best part of a 1,000 young people who went into these these Hatshara, these, these training centres, um, which is an area that I don't think has been given really the attention it deserves. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good point. And you mentioned um, Ari Handler. He was really the kind of driving force behind this initiative, wasn't he? Would you like to tell us more about him? Um, incredible person, um, just 24 years old at this particular time. Um, active in um, various... He, he was already working within Germany prior to, to all these events. He was a, a director of religious alia. Um, he, he was very involved in getting people to Palestine. Um, he was actually in Jerusalem at the time that Kristallnacht happened, and he was advised not to return to Germany. Um, he was being watched by the Gestapo. Um, he was... Uh, Adolf Eichmann knew of him, for example. There was an encounter between the two. Um, A very difficult relationship because both wanted the same thing, but for completely different reasons, which was to to help Jews out of Germany. Um, When he arrived in Britain, um, he set up shop in London, um, along with other um, uh, fellow members of Bakar or Youth Alliated, to continue as best he could to try and get people to, to Palestine. Um, but that was increasingly difficult to achieve. Um, and he was, as I say, involved in, in developing some of the Hatshara in Britain. And when he became aware that these young people who were still coming in in kind of transport um, were sort of backing up in the reception centres in large numbers, he had this idea of creating a large 
Hanksherah for them to go to, which was back to the the origins of his sort of um, interest in, in Greek castle. Um, so returning to the book itself, how did you go about researching this? Well, I said it began as a as a hobby, as an interest, without any particular plan to end up where I ended up. So it was it was somewhat scattergun at first, and I, I'll be totally honest, it began with with good old Google. Um, but you know that didn't yield a great deal, to be honest with you, apart from some some very basic information. Um, where I guess it really took off was when I became aware of um, various oral accounts, and, and they, they were key to the whole. Um, aspect of this. Now, I really once I got to the writing stage, or at least the point of realizing I, I wanted to do something with this, um, it was quite important to me to, to try and get the story that the young people themselves experienced, to use their words as much as possible. So there, there are a great number of oral accounts. Um, I did, um, and it was quite difficult to do, but I did track down the the members of of, of many families. Um, obviously, when I arrived at this some, some sort of five, eight years ago in proper um, fashion, many of those young people who've been at the castle were unfortunately no longer with us. Um, there's a few that I had contact with, which was fantastic. So I had their experience. Um, I had a couple of great interviews with a young, uh, an old man called Henry Glantz, for example, who was a young man at the time, of course, just 15. Um, used many anecdotes and, and details from families. Many families were very willing to share with me um, what they knew in, in it. In one particular case, in, in Henry Steinberg's case, um, I was given his unpublished autobiography, for example. So a collection of, of, of words from those who were there form the basis of this. There isn't a great deal of documentary evidence. Um, there is, uh, I may mispronounce this, but Heyenu, which is the um, Bakhad's own journal um, that British Library hold that I went through in some detail, local newspapers, um, and within the castle community itself, a couple of documents that were very useful. The, the group themselves produced their own anniversary yearbook um, in September 1940 that, that, was, that was very helpful. And they also produced a monthly newsletter um, several copies of which I managed to get my hands on and have a look through, which gives a nice insight into sort of more day-to-day kind of things and the attitudes as they were developing um, for the couple of years they were there. So it's a combination of, of, of different methodologies, I guess, but primarily oral history is, is largely based on. And what kind of um, interesting stories did you turn up? Um, and also, you might want to talk about how you um, structured the book as well. The structure of the book... Um, yeah, my, my, I'll be honest with you, my, my original sort of draft, I guess, was, was nothing like the, the way the book now reads. The book's in chronological order, it's, it's a story. Um, my original approach was, was much more thematic. Um, so I did, I did yeah, through my own fault, really sort of struggle with getting the structure of this right. Um, but I think the, the chronological storytelling approach, I, th- I think, is, is really quite useful because... Mm-hmm. The previous approach, which had been sort of to take, for example, health and hygiene or education or whatever as separate topics, but by weaving it together as, as, as a chronology, you can see the development of the group. And it's, it's really quite interesting because obviously in the early days, the early weeks in particular, it was a really, really tough start. Many of these young people had only very recently arrived in Britain in some cases, in, in a small number of cases that actually arrived in the very final kinder transport. So you can you can see that kind of confusion, that despair, um, and it, it 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 
it's very obvious in those first few weeks at the castle. It, it's it's not the building itself was empty. It, it was run down. They had very little food. They had very little furniture. Um, very very difficult start. But you can see as the story develops, they as they begin to develop it, as they begin to to get work on local farms, as as donations begin to come in from the community locally, a big donation from Marks and Spencers, you can see them establishing um, a home. Um, you can see them developing a hope, um, a, a thought process where there was a future. I mean, clearly the, the overall context is very dark. It's, it's very, very difficult. And, you know, many were still in contact with people at home. So there was some very upsetting news that many of them received. But you can see them developing this ambition. Um, of course, ultimately, you know, things will change over time and ultimately the centre will close. Um, but I think that that chronology allows for that sort of that that change in mood, and I think the the, the group hits a high point in the spring of nineteen forty when it does seem well established. And so, going back to your your question about anecdotes, I mean there there are many and varied, um, and, and you know there's there's some really quite amusing ones in there, despite the the context of all this. Um, I think one of my favourite stories in the in the entire book is, and I use it as the title of one of the chapters, um, Lek Mikamash, um, which is a little rude, I admit. But increasingly in the spring of 1940, it became a place, because it was established and because it was doing well, it was a place that local politicians and bigwigs liked to go and visit and claim they'd been there and whatever. And they were increasingly having visits from VIPs, which you'd imagine after a while was becoming a little bit annoying. Um, there's a great story of some some VIP or other, I think a, a mayor from nearby, I'm not quite sure who it was, it's not recorded who it was. Um, and he arrives and um, a, a group of a dozen or so young people are lined up to greet him. And he goes along the line and in, and in my head, there's no reason for this, he's almost certainly a Welsh guy, but I imagine him as some very posh Englishman and he sort of offers his hand and the first one and says, you know, how do I say, how do you do in your language? And this this young lad, quick as a flash, throws back, let me a marsh. Um, this VIP repeats it back. He goes to the next person, shakes his hand, let me a marsh. You know, he's, by the end of the line, he's, he's, he's got it. You know, he's, with full gusto, he's greeting every single person with let me a marsh without realising at all that he's been saying lick my arse all the way along. And I find that story, I think that, that story for me is, is a really important one because it's not just the humour of it. It's that sense of, of, by the spring of 1940, these young people have become young people again. You know, the, the, you can see the childishness of it, the, the prank, the humour of it, that, that self-confidence, you know. You can't imagine for one second them having done something similar with a German official just 12 or 18 months earlier. You know, it, it's. I think it's it's really quite revealing that that sense of self-confidence that story gives. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned this is a group of young people. Um, and, and what was it like for them? I mean, you know, what they get up to uh, when they weren't working? What was the dynamic like in, in the <laughs> castle? It's, it's As a teacher, one thing that really struck me was they, they were a group of 200 kids. Um, and they do what any group of 200 kids do. They, they muck about, they play games, they play sports, they fall out with each other, they, they become best friends with each other, there are love affairs, you know, it, it's all the things that kids would do, um, clearly in a very difficult context. But to give some sort of perspective on the time here, they, they were at the castle for two years. As I mentioned, the, 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 the first couple of months were really, really difficult. Um, many of them really struggled with it. 
as you can probably imagine, they struggle with the, the, the lack of home comforts as well as all the the separation issues from family, the concerns of family, the outbreak of the Second World War, all of those things weighed really heavily upon them in those first two or three months in particular. But then, you, then as I mentioned, by the spring of 1940, before the end of 1940, in 1939, but going into 40, you can see that sense of optimism that they're starting to produce a community, they're starting to develop bonds. Many of these young people didn't know each other, of course, when they first arrived at the castle. Um, so friendships formed. And some of those friendships became lifelong, um, became incredibly strong. Um, they spent every day together, very long days. Um, they would spend half a day working on local farms, half a day at the castle in education. In the evenings, they were on rostered duties for various things, various jobs around the castle, sort of DIY type things, that might be in the kitchen or the laundry or, or whatever it might be. Um, they had time off at the weekends. Um, they, they went on nature rambles. They went on local buses. They, they visited local sites. Um, they became a really strong community um, with, with really good bonds. Um, so there's almost like two versions of this. There's the early days and there's the sort of the high point, if you like, in 1940 when it's working really well. Um, but unfortunately, it, it does decline again um, towards the end of 1940 into 1941 um, for two reasons primarily. One is the war, um, which doesn't go particularly well, as we all know, particularly after Dunkirk. There's fears of invasion. There's the Battle of Britain. Um, that that worries them, as you can probably imagine. And, and crucially, is there, there's the internment um, of so-called enemy aliens um, in the summer of 1940, which, although it doesn't, internment, uh, for anybody who's not too clear, was, was when Winston Churchill became Prime Minister, he was, he was concerned about the possibility of, of foreign spies within Britain and made the assumption that if they if they were here, they would be foreign. Um, so internment was the the removal, basically, of anyone over the age of 16 who was of German or Austrian origin um, and, and put in camps. Um, because most of the young people at the castle um, were not 16 or above or were not German or Austrian, because many of them had Polish ancestry or Czech or whatever, um, it, it didn't take huge numbers away from the castle, but it took a significant number away. And that really damaged the optimism. It really damaged the, the, the morale of the place. So that plus the, the events in the war um, do change things. And I suppose the final factor is as well, for many of the young people, they, they were 14 to 18 year olds at the castle. Um, but as time went on, obviously more and more of them were approaching the age of 18 or hit the age of 18. And it was time to move on. Uh, and you do see towards the last few months of this, um, many of them starting to really think about their future. Um, and some of them do begin to leave before the age of 18 um, to begin their own lives, um, go and try and find paid work and so on. So, um, so yeah, so the, it, it's, it, it's, it's an interesting arc in one sense. It starts very badly. It becomes something quite unique for a long period of time. Um, but then external pressures begin to affect it, and it, it does go into a very swift decline in 1941. And then what happens? So there's the several factors. The, the costs of the castle were huge. Um, the repair bills um, to make this a long-term um, viable project were, were, were huge. 
There were problems with the water pump. There were problems with the, the roof. There were problems with the stoves. Um, and Bafiad was was also beginning to run out of money. They were they were closing centres. Um, so the financial issues began to to, to bear up on this. Um, they were offered a new location. Um, the Cabri family um, offered them a, a, a new home, potentially in Birmingham, um, which was more modern, would require much less um, maintenance. Um, and it was, to use a modern phrase, a bit of a no-brainer, really, to, to sort of move. Um, another factor, it might seem a minor one, but I think it was probably more important than, than I, with hindsight, given it credit. Um, but for these young people, there was no Jewish community in North Wales to link up to. They were, they were very isolated in that sense, whereas in Birmingham, there was more of a community they could link to. So for a variety of reasons, it, it made sense to move. So from the spring of 1941, there's, there's a, a gradual closing of the centre. It doesn't close overnight. There's no major announcement. There's no single day. It, it, they just begin to run it down. Um, there is a lack of new 14-year-olds coming in. So as those beca- who become 18, they move on. That does reduce the numbers. Um, but others began to be moved out. They were offered places in other centres. Um, as I mentioned before, quite a few of them began to start thinking about leaving anyway. Um, so really you have this, this slow decline from the sort of spring of 1941. Um, and by September of 1941, the place is closed with, with very little fanfare. It, it just sort of fades away. And how many of them made it to Palestine? Couldn't give you precise numbers, but roughly it seems to me, looking at it, it, it comes in, in thirds. About a third of them um, seem to make it to Palestine or Israel later. Um, about a third of them go to the USA, um, and about a third of them stay in Britain. Um, that, that, those are generalisations, but it, it seems to split those those three ways primarily. Um, many of them, though, didn't make it to Israel until much later in life. Um, several of them perhaps didn't really go there until the 1980s or 1990s, you know, sort of retirement age or whatever it might be. Um, but about a third of them approximately did make Alia eventually. So some success uh, in terms of the aims of... Uh, Absolutely. And, and you know, there's also a kibbutz in, in Israel, Kibbutz Lavi, which was set up by, by Greek youngsters. Although it was interesting, and I do make this point in the book, as far as I could tell in researching all those I could identify, not a single one of them ended up working in agriculture, which was kind of the whole point of the training of this. So I presume in that particular regard, it, it, it put them off. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame them. Having spent time working in agriculture in a kibbutz, although I would do it again if uh, if one could. Um, so one thing that interests me, I mean, you know, I like how you're talking about them being youngsters and uh, getting up to what youngsters get up to and, um, you know, humanising the, the individuals, is what was the impact on the wider community? Um, you know, obviously these kids, uh, you mentioned the foreign dignit- uh, the, the visiting dignitaries, you mentioned um, they go out and work on the farms. Often when we, when we talk about immigration to an area, we talk about what the people who arrived did and, and whether they stayed or not. But we don't necessarily talk about what the impact was. The impact was huge on Abigaili, but 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 short lived. Um, I'm sort of going to go in reverse a little bit here. So when I first started this, I really couldn't find much out about it locally. The the, the memory of this faded very very quickly. Um, but at the time, they 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 
they, they played a huge part. There's a report by Euthalia, for example, that talks about how the, the group here stimulated the local economy. They certainly stimulated the local agrarian economy. Um, there were big concerns amongst local farmers when the war began about increased quotas, um, but a declining number of farm labourers. These young people, 200 young people, free labour, they, they made a huge difference. And, and one way of proving that is the fact that very shortly after the centre closed, um, a land army unit had to be stationed in the town to, to make up the numbers a little bit. Um, so in that regard, they were, they were crucial on the local farms. When I was researching it, I'll, I'll be totally honest, I, I did expect to find some examples of anti-Semitism or, or, or some sort of conflict between perhaps the community and the castle. I genuinely found none. Um, and in all, all the oral testimonies, and several of them were asked directly, you know, did you recall anything? And none of them did. Um, they seemed to sort of settle into the area really, really well. I think there were several aspects to that. One was the, the fact that, <coughs> excuse me, um, they were playing an important role on local farms and they got to know people of a similar age, I guess, quite quickly working on those local farms. Um, they they were incredibly polite, incredibly courteous. Um, and that, that comes up in several different testimonies, um, which obviously always helps, doesn't it, if you've got a group that, that, that are friendly. Um, but there just, just seems to be, and if nothing else, I guess the final element of this is that everyone could realise they got a common enemy here. Um, and so they were all sort of on the same side. They all wanted the same thing. I was struck by by how many locals made donations, charitable donations to the place. Um, there's the local cinema owner who was quite happy to let the young people in for free or for some sort of pointless chore just to make the point a little bit. Um, they, they were visible in the shops. They were visible on the streets. Initially, you know, not... They were quite reluctant at first to go into town. They were a little bit concerned about the reaction that they might get. Um, but where there was a reaction, it was more to do with them being German rather than being Jewish. Um, there's, there's one story of a... I mean, it, Abigail wasn't an area that was being targeted by German bombers, but there is a chapter towards the end that does relate the fact that some bombs were dropped on the area. And one damages a local garage and the, the owner's really angry and turns to the kids when they turn up for work and says, you buggers caused this, you buggers can clear it up, you know. Other than that, though, that, that was that was probably the, most, the only real example I found of anybody being angry with them about anything. Um, they just seemed to slot in. They, they worked on people's gardens. They gave free labour. They were in the shops, as I mentioned. They were in the cinema. Um, it was a really... <laughs> A really good relationship, but it does intrigue me a little bit how the the memory of it was lost quite quickly afterwards, um, and I think that possibly comes down to the fact that it, it was a relatively short period of time, um, from nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty one. Of course, there's a lot more in the Second World Story, Second World War story, still to happen. Um, so it, it it's a fleeting appearance, but it seems to be a very positive one. Um, and in terms of um, wider Welsh and Jewish history, are you able to um, situate the story story in that? Um, I'm not sure I can, if I'm honest with you. Um, I'm not sure how it really necessarily connects um, particularly to the wider picture. It, it does seem that there wasn't a particularly large Jewish community within North Wales um, before their arrival. They, they, they are the biggest single group. Um 
that there is there is quite an active group in Tlandidno that they do link with. Um, but um, um, no, I'm afraid I can't really. I apologise. No, no, that's that's a, <laughs> that's okay. I mean, for listeners' uh, benefit, I, I'm interested in uh, Welsh Jewish history, particularly that of North Wales. So um, this story is an interesting um, element of that wider history of um, Jewish settlement and immigration to North Wales since the 13th century. Um, right. Um, well, thank you very much for that, Andrew. That's very interesting. Um, I'm intrigued. Are you working on another book? Uh, I'm taking a break. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> but uh, no, I've got two or three ideas for the future. But at the moment, it's um, yeah. I'm just taking a bit of a break from the whole process. It's been quite a, quite a. I do work. I have a day job as well. So this has been very much. I've loved doing it, and I've loved the experience of it. And I would like to do another one, but at some point, you're not going to share with us any of the uh, ideas. Well, the, the, my real, if, 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 if I have an area of expertise, if I can call it that, it would be to do with the First World War, which was where this began, actually. I was, I was researching the locality in the First World War, came across this story, got sidetracked, and 10 years later, here I am. Um, I might return to that. And I'm particularly interested in the story. My, I have a real interest in local history, as mentioned earlier, but I, I don't like local history that's just for the sake of it, just this happened here and this. I like it when it has some sort of point or some sort of purpose or, or allows us to look at that that bigger picture or plays a part in that, which I think this particular story does. So the one that potentially appeals to me is the story of the Canadians um, at Kimball Camp towards the end of the First World War and the, the riots that took place there. I know some work has been done on that, but I'm not sure that that's... that's that's as well known a story as it could be, and that that has international connotations. So, as as this story does, so that that's that's the one in the back of my mind. All right, well, great, sounds fascinating. Um, well, I'd just like to say thank you very much for writing this book, because um, it's you know, like you say an under research but important dimension of uh, Welsh history and also Jewish history and Welsh Jewish history. So it kind of adds to our growing knowledge um, in the area. Um, but yeah. Um, I look forward to hearing more about your, your other project in the future when you get around to doing it. Well, but, this took uh, 10 years, so don't hold your breath, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> it will fly by and then I would have... Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, well, not for you, but for me it will. Um, <laughs> I know what it's like to get a book through to production. Um, but yes, thank, thank you very much, Andrew. Um, it's a pleasure. Really thank you for being chat. Thank you. Oh, no problem.